0: But we do know this, that if there is a God, then he must be higher than we are. We must be indebted to him. And therefore, we might wonder, why is it that we really don't know very much about God? Well, the problem is really in the area of proper knowledge. In two sermons recently, I've told you that speaking about God from the evidence of creation and speaking about him from the evidence that's in the written word of God are two entirely different things. Creation is a generic revelation that there is a God, but the written Word of God is different because only those who have come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and have a relationship with Him can really understand the written Word of God and to understand who God really is and who Jesus is. Well, as John is writing this letter to born-again Christians... What he has in mind is giving these people some assurance of things that they really should know. And he talks about things that we know. And there are some important things Christians ought to know. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read from 1 John chapter 5 tonight. We're going to begin with verse number 1. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 1, it says, "...whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous." For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you might reveal some things from your Word tonight. Help us to see things that Christians really ought to know and some great and precious promises and truths that we have from this portion of Scripture. Bless the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't have time for us to read the entire book of 1 John tonight. Back about a year and a half or so ago, I was at a conference in Reno. There was a man who got up to speak in that conference, and I wasn't sure what he was going to do. But he got up to speak, and he began reciting the book of 1 John. And he started with John, 1 John 1, verse number 1. And before he was done, he had recited the entire five chapters in 1 John. Well, I can't do that, and I don't even have time to read it all tonight... But I would encourage you on your own time, you really ought to take some time to read First John. Because here we are in chapter 5, and this is really the uh, conclusion of an essay that John writes about some things that Christians ought to know. In the first four chapters, John uses the word know 19 times, and here in this fifth chapter, he uses that word eight times. Heard a story once about some lawyers who were discussing their knowledge of the Bible. And one of these lawyers was telling the other one how that he had just become a Sunday school teacher in his church. Well, the other lawyer said to him, that's impossible. How could you be a Sunday school teacher? You don't really know anything at all about the Bible. And the man said, well, yes, I do. I do know some things about the Bible. And the other fellow said, well, if you know something about the Bible, then why don't you recite for me the Lord's Prayer? And he said, well, I think that I can do that. And so he said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And the other lawyer looked at him with big eyes and he said, I didn't know you knew so much about the Bible. (laughs) Well, people are very confused about the Bible. You might remember, those of you that have been around a while, a couple of years ago, I preached some uh, sermons about some things that are not in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. You won't find that in the Bible. But there are some things in the Bible that we ought to know. And here in 1 John chapter 5, we're going to talk about some things that we know. Number one, we know what a Christian is. Now, this is one of those questions that does bring a variety of answers. When you ask a person, what is a Christian, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some people say that a Christian is one who helps other people. Some believe that Christians are people who donate money to the Red Cross or other charitable organizations. They might tell you that a Christian is somebody who goes down to the soup kitchen and helps feed hungry people. That's a Christian. And some people will say, well, a Christian, well, that's somebody who goes to church. Or at least part of the time, they go to church. Well, those answers may, may be right, but they're not what define a Christian. Most people today in America say that they're Christians just by virtue of the fact that they're not atheists or they're not Muslims. And so that makes them a Christian. But that's not what makes a person a Christian. If you want to meet the Bible's criteria of what a Christian is, John gives us the answer right here in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at that again. He said, "...whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments." So do you see what the Bible says that a Christian is? A Christian is one who has been born of God. So very simply, we could say this, that a Christian is born again. That's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. That's what makes him a Christian. He's born again. And that means that he's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And the fact that he has been regenerated, that's what enables him to repent of his sins and to put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, most people never even give a second thought to that definition of what a Christian is. Most people are like Nicodemus that we talked about this morning. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus and he thought that everything was all right. He thought because he was a religious man, because he was somebody who lived a good life, then that must mean that he's fit for the kingdom of God. Well, I've told you many times before that Christianity is not religion. Christianity is not getting religion. Christianity is a relationship. It's not religion, it's a relationship. And that relationship is a personal, intimate one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John says we know what a Christian is because he has this identifying mark. He's been born again. And friends, being born again makes all the difference in the world... Being born again enables a person to practice righteousness, to do things that are pleasing to God. Being born again enables a person to love other Christians. It enables him to overcome the world. It enables a person to keep himself from Satan. And being a Christian enables you to share the love of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ with lost people who need to know him. So all of these things, these are products of the new birth. Well, if that's true, if we know what a Christian is, then we'd have to know this next thing, and that's how a Christian acts. We know how a Christian acts. Now, you'll have to strap yourself in your chair for this one because I want you to look down at verse number 18. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, "...we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not." Now, right there, all of us might think this. I can't be a Christian. I could not be a Christian because the Bible says right here, a born-again Christian does not sin. And you know that there are some people who've taken this verse and they've used it to mean or to uh, teach a doctrine of sinless perfection. Many of the Pentecostals and Charismatics and some of those folks believe in sinless perfection. And they say, well, we don't sin anymore. Once we get saved, we don't sin any longer. I actually knew a Baptist lady who said, I stopped sinning. I don't sin anymore. Well, this is a very tough statement to live up to. Whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Well, before we sink in despair over that verse, it bears a little bit more investigation. Investigation. Because, first of all, if John said, born-again Christians don't sin, then it really would have been pointless for for, uh, all of the writers of the New Testament to deal with this very issue. And that's how Christians often fall into sin. So why would he write this? The Bible tells us that we need to watch out for Satan. He's the roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. Well, if we don't need to worry about him, if we can't sin, then what's the whole point of writing about that? In 1 John chapter 1, John has already written about Christians who sin because he says, if we say that we've not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, so John has to be talking about saved people there because lost people don't have the word of God in them. Well, as we look at that verse, then what does it mean? What does it mean when it says a Christian doesn't sin? Well, the secret to this is really in the tense of the verbs that are used in this verse. And what is apparent in the original language that's not apparent in the English as we read it is that the tense of the verbs here has a continuous action. So we could translate the verse this way. Whosoever is born of God does not habitually or he does not continually practice a lifestyle of sin. So here's what we know. A Christian does not habitually sin. A Christian has a change of disposition towards sin. He now has the ability to live in righteousness, and the fact that he is a child of God will be evident in the things that he does in his life. Now, here's what happens. The new birth does something to you, and if you claim to be a Christian and you've not had a change of behavior, if there's no change of lifestyle after you say that you receive Christ, then the truth of the matter is you really haven't been born again. John is telling us that we know who a Christian is, we know what a Christian does, because here's a person that does not live in a lifestyle of sin. Now, one thing that the Bible knows nothing at all about, it doesn't know anything about pray a prayer Christians, it doesn't know anything about repeat after me Christians. What I mean by that, those are people who have not been told that in order to be saved, a person must repent of their sins and they must put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us that there must be a holiness in that person and it says that without that, we will not see God. Now, this is the problem of those people who teach that number one, repentance is not necessary to salvation and some of them are teaching that repentance and faith are identical things. They mean exactly the same thing. And then some of them teach, number two, that perseverance is not required for believers. Well, folks, you have no reason to believe that you're saved at all if you still continue in a worldly lifestyle. If you're still living like you did before, if you do not persevere in righteousness and true holiness then there's no proof that you're really the the child of God. So to teach other than that, to teach people that you don't need to repent of all your sins, just repent of the sin of unbelief. It's not necessary for you to persevere. That's the same thing as saying, or I should say it's completely the opposite of what John is teaching. It's against what Jesus taught and it's against what the apostles taught. There will be a change. Now here's something. You don't get saved without a conscious commitment of your life to Jesus in order to make him the Lord of your life. Now, some people will say, well, we can't accept that. We can't believe that because that's lordship salvation. Well, you can call it whatever you like. It doesn't matter to me. It's biblical salvation, and it's not the same easy believism and the same decisional regeneration type preaching that's being taught in many of our churches today. What we have are too many churches that bring people in. They baptize them without a credible profession of faith. They haven't really been born again. And so consequently, they fill their churches up with people who are not true believers in Jesus Christ. Now, there are many professors of Jesus, but there are not enough possessors of true eternal life and born-again Christians who really trust in the Lord. Now, let me explain something about what I've said. I'm not saying that a Christian never sins I'm not saying that a Christian does not backslide. I'm not saying that you won't find yourself as a Christian getting into positions now and then where you have to do some very serious backtracking and repenting to God, telling God you're sorry and trying to get back into fellowship with Him because of things that you've done. That happens to all of us at some time or another. But what I am telling you, that if you're a person that you have no desire for Christ, you have no desire for fellowship with God's people, you have no affinity for the church of the living God, then you have no cause to say that you're truly a Christian, that you've been born again. Because John says we know how a Christian acts. I think all of you understand what I'm saying tonight. I'm not saying that we're saved by our good works. I'm not saying that anything we do will save us. But I am saying that a person who is saved will evidence that faith in his salvation by doing good works, by following the Lord. And if a person does not follow the Lord, there's no evidence that he's saved. Now, there's something else here that John says we know, and this is really tremendous because he says here that we know who Jesus is. And that's very important. We know who Jesus is. Now, very clearly and in concise detail, John says who Jesus is. Look at verse number 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost... And these three are one. I want to stop there just a minute. If you happen to be using an NIV Bible tonight, you'll notice that Father, Word, and Holy Ghost are completely left out of the Scriptures in that version. Verse number 8. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, what does the Bible say? It says, we know who Jesus is because there are two witnesses where proof can be found of who Jesus is. The first one is, there is a witness in heaven. There's a witness in heaven about who Jesus is, and that witness in heaven is nothing less than the Holy Trinity of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they witness to the truth of who Jesus is. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father spoke from heaven and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as he spoke, the Bible tells us that the Spirit descended in the form of a dove and he landed on Jesus. Now some people ask, well, well, does God still speak today? Is God speaking Just like God spoke from heaven then, does God still speak? And are you sitting around waiting to hear the audible voice of God? Well, the Bible tells us that God speaks in a different way today. And Paul writes about it in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, "...whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the world." So God is still speaking, but the way that God speaks is through Christ. And if you want to hear what God says, the only way that you'll ever hear him is in the words of Jesus. There's only one way that you're going to know God and have access to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, we have access to God in prayer by the name of Jesus... Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John? He said, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. So God speaks because of Christ. Now, there are some people who will pray and they'll invoke the name of Jesus and they'll expect to hear God and to get an answer from God, but they really don't pray in faith and they really don't believe. I read recently about a church that was praying that God would not let a tavern be opened in their town. So they got the whole church together and they decided to have an all-night prayer meeting asking God not to let this tavern open up in their town. Well, it so happened that that very night that lightning struck the tavern and burned it completely to the ground. Well, the tavern owner went and got a lawyer and he filed a lawsuit against the church. And he said, it's your fault that the church burned down to the ground. Well, the church went and got themselves a lawyer, and they said, it's not our fault. We we didn't cause that. Well, they took the case to the court, and the judge who heard the case, he said, well, no matter what the outcome of the case, the tavern owner is the one who believes in prayer, and the church doesn't. Now, isn't it something, folks, that we begin to substitute the words of men for the words of God, and we believe men rather than we believe God? Men will believe in Evolution despite the witness of God that we find in the Bible. Men will believe in the universal brotherhood of man, the universal fatherhood of God, in spite of what we read in the Bible. Men will believe and reject the deity of Jesus Christ in spite of the witness that God has given us in in the Bible. And there are so many people who believe that the salvation of their souls is dependent upon something that they do, some sacrament that they have performed, being baptized, taking communion, uh, being confirmed, uh, going to confession, whatever it might be. And they believe all of those things in spite of the witness of God that we find in the Scriptures. But John says, we have the witness of God, and God's witness is always truthful, it's always right, and you can always trust that witness. In verse number 9, he said, if we receive the witness of men, and we do, we receive the witness of man. He says, well, if you receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. But we also have a witness in another place. Not only is there a witness of who Jesus is in heaven, but there's also a witness on the earth. And John says there is a witness on the earth, three things that bear record of who Jesus who Jesus is. That's the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, there are a lot of different opinions about what John is talking about when he says the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And not everybody interprets this passage exactly the same way. And there are, in fact different interpretations that don't actually do any violence to the Scripture. You, you may take a different interpretation and still come out with something that's truthful. So let's talk about these three things for just a moment. The first one he talks about is the Spirit. And the most natural reading that we would have there is that John must mean the Holy Spirit... And if he means the Holy Spirit, then we know that it is certainly true that when a person places his faith in Jesus Christ that God's Spirit comes to live within him. There's the presence of the indwelling Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul said, "...the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God." And so the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and he witnesses with our spirit that we have truly trusted in Christ, and we have become God's children. Now, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, he is constantly pointing to Jesus. He always does that in regeneration... When you need to be saved, the Holy Spirit points out who Jesus is and he leads you to Jesus to believe in him. And then after you have trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to keep all of the focus on Jesus. We notice that the Scriptures never say that the Holy Spirit magnifies and centers his attention on himself. You never find the Holy Spirit doing that. The Holy Spirit is never prominent. He always points to Jesus. And anything that takes the focus off of Jesus, is not being done under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in fact, there is a power, there is a spirit that does that, but that's not the spirit of Jesus Christ, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, all of this business about tongue-talking and faith-healing and slaying people in the Spirit, all those things that people do to magnify the Holy Spirit, that's not the work of the real Holy Spirit. And the Scriptures bear that out. That's not what the Holy Spirit came to do. The Holy Spirit came to magnify Jesus. He does it in regeneration, and He does it as the focus of our Christian lives. So John may be speaking here about the Holy Spirit, but then there are some people who say, well, if he's speaking about the Holy Spirit in verse number number uh, uh, 8, as he did in verse number 7, then that would be redundant. There wouldn't be any reason for him to talk about the Holy Spirit again, and so John must be talking about something else. So perhaps John is talking about the witness of the gospel. He's talking about the Spirit of Christ as it's contained in the gospel. And certainly we would have to say the gospel is a witness of Jesus. The gospel is Jesus, The gospel is only Jesus. There's no other way that a person will ever be saved except by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to say that what he's talking about here is the spirit of the gospel, well, that's all right. You haven't done any damage to the scriptures because that's a good interpretation. But whichever it is, we have a powerful witness, either by the Holy Spirit or by the written gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living word of God, and that tells us who Jesus is. Now, the second thing that he talks about here is the water. And again, we're talking about differences of opinion. When people think about, well, what does he mean when he talks about the water? Some people say that this refers to the baptism of Jesus. Now, I talked about that just a moment ago. There was that display where the Heavenly Father spoke from heaven in an audible voice. There was the Holy Spirit coming down and descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And that was a witness of who Jesus is. So we could say here that this is Jesus' baptism. And in that, there's a witness given to who he is. Well, that's all right. That works. It's a good interpretation. Some say, well, no, it doesn't mean that. What this means is the water that flowed out of the side of Jesus when he was crucified. I preached about that a couple of Sundays ago, and I talked a little bit about it again this morning. Uh, It could be that. Maybe it's the water that flowed out of the side of Jesus. And John talks about that. He says that he's a witness of it. In fact, he's the only one of the apostles who said, I saw that happen personally. And he was very emphatic about that. I saw it happen. In John 19, verses 34 and 35, it says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came thereout blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. So maybe that's what John means. Makes good sense, because he's the only gospel writer who records it. And he says, I personally saw it. But then there are other people who say, well, no, the water doesn't refer to Jesus' baptism. It's not talking about the water that came out of his side. What the scriptures are talking about is our baptism. In our baptism, there's a witness of who Jesus is. And I would have to say that certainly that is true... Christian baptism is a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who Jesus is and what he's done. This morning, again, we talked about that, that baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me say once again that every Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, in order to be obedient to Christ, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a picture of what you have believed in your heart And in order to be obedient to the Lord, people ought to be baptized. Now, there are people that are saved, of course, without being baptized because baptism has nothing at all to do with your salvation. But what baptism does show is that you have embraced the truth. You have believed the truth. And now you want to be identified with Christ. And you want to publicly confess that you have believed in Christ. And that's why we make this a public ordinance. It's why we have a baptistry right here in our church. So everybody can witness the public confession of someone who has believed in Christ. Now, you might be ignorant of baptism because somebody didn't tell you about it. But if you want to be more than a believer and you want to be called a true Christian, then you need to be baptized. Baptism is the first ordinance that identifies us with Christ. Now, there's some people who think, well, the way that I publicly identify with Christ is I walk up the aisle. When the invitation is given in church, I walk up the aisle, and now I am publicly confessing Jesus as my Savior. But you know, the Bible never says anything about that. Not one place in all of the Bible, in all the New Testament, will you ever find that somebody walked up a church aisle, and that was called his public identification with Jesus Christ. That's not our public identification The identification comes through the waters of baptism. That's the confession that we have believed in Christ. I think it's remarkable that in many soul-winning presentations, and churches teach this, that you ought not to tell people when you're giving them the gospel, you ought not to talk about the ordinance of baptism. I don't think that's biblical. I think that when you give a person a gospel presentation that you always tell them that if you have believed, if you really trust this, if you believe it, then the proper response to your faith in Jesus Christ is that you follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Now once again, baptism never saved anybody. That's not what it's for, but it's for the public confession of our faith saying that we have believed. So whether you believe that the water that he's talking about in 1 John refers to Christ's baptism, whether it refers to the water that came out of Jesus' side or whether it refers to our own baptism, it's still true. Those are powerful witnesses of who Jesus is. Now, the third thing that John talks about here is the blood. Now, what about the blood? Well, if you take the position that the water is the water that flowed out of the side of Jesus, then you would probably also want to take the position that the blood must mean the blood that came out of his side. And if that's the case, if that's what you think, then you relate the saving efficacy of the blood in just a little bit different manner. Now, if the water, though, refers to the ordinance of baptism, then the blood perhaps could refer to the other ordinance that we have in the church. There's only two of those. One's baptism and one's the Lord's Supper. And when we meet together to take the Lord's Supper, if you want to call it communion, whatever, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the fruit of the vine, and the fruit of the vine represents the blood of Jesus Christ that God used as the redemption price to pay for our sins. Here's a verse that we often read at the Lord's Supper. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So then, if you believe that... Um, The blood is what came out of the, or or, or relates to water water baptism, I should say. If you believe that's what it is, then you may relate the blood of Jesus Christ in this verse to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But then there are others, still others, who say that what this refers to is the whole manner of Christ's death. Because in Christ's crucifixion, there was a lot of blood. There was blood that flowed from his head when the crown of thorns were placed there. There was blood that came from his back as he was beaten. Beaten. There was blood that came from his hands and from his feet as the nails were driven there. And then, of course, again, there was that blood that flowed from his side. But the important thing to remember there is that the blood had to be shed. Because God said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, all of those explanations are good. But whatever, whatever you do, you cannot miss the power of the blood. Salvation is dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there is no blood, there is no salvation. Now, friends, there are many people today in churches that are very upset about the use of blood. Talking about the blood is not popular. In many churches that you'll go into, you'll find out that they have removed references of the blood of Christ from their hymn books. And the songs that they sing, it doesn't talk about the blood at all. And what preachers try to do, since they don't like to talk about the blood, they'll tell you, well, what was really necessary is simply the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die. And they relate all the saving efficacy efficacy, and sufficiency to the fact that Jesus died. Well, of course, Jesus had to die. That, that's extremely important, he had to die. But let me tell you something, he had to shed his blood... There had to be blood shed because that blood had to be taken and sprinkled on that heavenly mercy seat. And when Jesus did that, he made atonement for the sins of his people. The death of Jesus Christ is totally meaningless if there is no blood. A few weeks ago, I don't know how long ago it was, I was preaching about this and I told you then, if you think that the death of Jesus was all that was necessary, then perhaps Jesus could have been struck by a bolt of lightning and that would have taken care of things. Maybe Jesus could have got run over by a chariot and that would have taken care of things. Maybe Jesus just died of a heart attack. He died and that would take care of things. None of those things would work. Jesus had to die according to the scripture. He had to shed his blood and he had to take that blood into heaven. So unless Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament types, there is no salvation. So if you have any doubt about the power of the blood... Folks, the only thing that you need to do is take a trip to the cross. Take a trip to the cross and look and see what Jesus did there and the blood that flowed from him, the bloodstains of the Son of God. That's the redemption price for our sin. So John says we have a witness in heaven and we have a witness on earth. Both heaven and earth declare the glory of the Son of God. Now let me go on. I just want to give you one more. And this last one is number four, we know the truth. John says, we know the truth. Now, lots of people are confused. There are many different opinions about things. People are confused, as I said, about what a Christian is. People are confused about how a Christian acts. They're confused about who Jesus is. But John says, we know the truth. How do we know the truth? Well, look at verse number 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, write this down. How do you know the truth? Because God gives understanding. John says God has given us understanding. That's how we know the truth. Now, God hasn't given everybody understanding. You know this verse very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14 Where Paul wrote, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. God hasn't given everybody understanding of the truth. Now, many people are confused about things, and the reason is God has not given them understanding. What happens when you have understanding? I'll tell you exactly what happens when God gives you understanding. You put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins. You trust Him. That's what happens when you get understanding. Understanding means that you now recognize the personal, soul-saving ability of Jesus. Now, John's statement there in verse number 20, that's one of the most important uh, doctrines of the Bible. And if you don't get this right, then the whole understanding about the hows and the whys and salvation and how it comes to us, it'll all be skewed If you don't get this, that God is the one who gives us understanding. I can pick up my Bible, and I can read it cover to cover, every single word in this Bible, and unless God gives me understanding, I won't know anything that it's about. God gives me the understanding. My IQ does not do that. doesn't matter how smart that I am. All of my schooling does not give me that. It doesn't prepare me for it. All of my secular training, all of my intellect, none of that is sufficient to prepare me for what God has to say in his word. The only way that I'll ever understand it is when God gives me the understanding. Now, if not, then we could just take the Bible and hand it to anybody. And we say, well, have at it. You can understand it. But they can't because understanding is not a product of man's ability. This is God's territory. And unless God, in his good pleasure, sees fit to open the eyes of men's understanding so they see the truth of the gospel, the saving truth of the scripture, they'll never be saved. Have you ever thought about this? What is it that makes the difference in you? Why is it that you believe and maybe that person that's sitting next to you, everybody here, I think, tonight, I know most of you, everybody uh, has confessed the Lord is Savior. You're saved that you're saved. But on Sunday morning, like, uh, a morning like this morning, uh, there may have been a lot of people in here who weren't saved. Now, why is it that one person sitting under the gospel of Jesus Christ will believe it, and yet the same gospel goes in and out the ears of the other person, and he doesn't care at all about what he, what he heard? Why is that? Is that because you're smarter than the person sitting next to you? Is it because you have good sense and that's why you believe and that person doesn't? Absolutely not. The only reason that ever, any person ever believes in Jesus Christ is because God illuminates his mind and opens it up to the truth of the gospel. So here's something we know. God has given us understanding of the truth. Now, God's, God's revelation of his truth is selective, And there's no greater proof of that than that some people believe and some don't. And here's what happens. No one who has had his eyes of understanding open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one who has been illuminated will ever refuse to come to Christ. You know, the Bible says in the book of John, Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. How could Jesus say that? How could he say that all that the Father giveth me will come to me? Because he knew that when they have been illuminated to the truth, they won't fail to come. They absolutely will come and believe in him. So don't let anybody tell you that all you do is you pitch out the gospel indiscriminately, and then it's up to the person whether they do or whether they don't. Take it or leave it at will. It's all up to them. That's not how it works. The gospel must be wielded in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. And when the Holy Spirit takes that gospel and makes it effectual in a person's heart, that's when you believe it. Now, John says, this is why you know the truth. God has given you understanding. Now, let me give it close with this consideration. Have you ever thought as a child of God? Have you ever wondered, even for a moment, what if what we believe or what we say is not true? What if what I have believed is not really true and somebody else is right? What about all these other people out here of all kinds of different interpretations of Scripture? What if they're right and we're not right? Now, if you're a child of God, I would say that just about all of us, at one time or another, we've had that thought in our mind, what if they're right and we're wrong? Well, here's exactly where John is at his very best in giving us assurance I want you to turn back to 1 John chapter 2, verse number 27 for just a moment. And let's read this scripture. 1 John 2, 27. It's natural for us to have doubts. So what happens when you have doubt? It says, But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now make note of this, the believer in Jesus Christ is anointed. Now this is not the kind of anointing that you hear the charismatics talk about. This anointing is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts. When you get saved, this earthly house, this tabernacle of flesh, that becomes the abiding place of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to that verse I read again. In in Romans chapter 8, verse number 16, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So how do you know that what we're teaching and what you have received in your heart is the truth? You know it by the presence of the indwelling Spirit. Now, do you know why unbelievers say, well, you can't know what truth is. We don't know what truth is. It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. Why does an unbeliever say, well, there's no way that you can know which religion is right. There's no way that you can tell who's got the right interpretation and who's telling the truth. There's no way of knowing that. Well, there is. How do we know that we're correct in interpretation? Because we have the Holy Spirit witnessing with our spirit that it is the truth. So this is something that we know, that as a child of God, you can be absolutely sure about. Here's what will happen to you. When a false teacher comes with a false teaching, the Holy Spirit says, hold on just a minute. You hear it being taught, and the Holy Spirit says to your heart, stop right there. Stop right there. That's not the truth. Stay away from that. That person's not giving you the truth of the gospel or the truth of what the Bible really has to say. The Holy Spirit is right there in a saved person's heart and he guides us into all truth. And so that's why we can have assurance. So do you know why false religions go out and deceive the world? It's because the lost man does not have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not living inside of him to help him to discern the truth. So John says we know something. We know the truth. And because we know the truth, we can walk in God's light and we ought to walk in God's light We ought to continually walk in the God's light because he has given us the truth. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, those are very special promises, very special knowledge that God has given us, and that's beyond what the world will ever know. And it only comes to you when you've trusted Jesus Christ. So let me ask you tonight, aren't you glad that you know some things? Aren't you glad that God's given you understanding, that God's opened up the word of God to you? So now you can receive all the benefits of God's Word. You can apply it to your life and live a pleasing life to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are good things that you need to know. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your Word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us some understanding of your Word. And we ask you, Lord, that as we depend upon you, as we pray to you, as we read your Word, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. Thank you for each one who's come out tonight. Speak to our hearts through the message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.